Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We are sorry, Winona Ryder, if you are listening. Wait, Winona Ryder is a real person? <laughs> oh, sweet. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Dungeon Deep Dive. We do the research so you don't have to. And bringing us all the best in our tabletop RPG world building, I have to my left... Danae Bags. And to my right... Lachlan Hoy. And my name's Tally Grimley. Oh, I do want to just say up top, just to give people kind of a better explanation of what this show is about, because it has been brought to our attention that that was maybe a little bit unclear in the last couple of episodes... Um, but so more or less what we're, gonna, what we're doing here today and every week is that we're just looking into the real world history and some of the fictional history and the D&D canon and then just of specific topics and working out um, what is necessary to apply them to your world and then talking about how you could apply them. Yeah, we're basically just going to do a deep dive on all the things that the source books don't go into much detail on. Mm-hmm. So, uh, or the things that they go into detail on but we think they're wrong. That is an important distinction that I'm sure we will get to later on. <laughs> now, uh, in the past, we've kind of jumped straight into things, but I had an idea for a little bit of a game as, a, as an icebreaker that we could do here. So, what is your favourite part of building a character, guys? Huh, that's a good question. Honestly, the name, because I'm one of those wankers that needs every name to have like some secret meaning. Fantastic. You know, like you look up the meaning of like a specific trait or flaw that your character has and you're like, oh, I need to name them something that in some obscure language that means this word. <laughs> That's me. I'm that. I back that. I back that. That's pretty cool. Um, my answer is going to sound lame, um, but I guess like the character, the character's moral code, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. I like knowing what my character would do. In like any given situation, I think that's the most interesting part. That's fair. What oh. a D D player. <laughs> yeah. No, mine's mine's fairly similar. I really like figuring out what my character's flaws are and where they could go wrong. It's mm. what what would I have to do or what would the world have to do to break this character? Because I think there's no purpose in having a character that's just a paragon of good. You need them to have flaws and have a reason or have yeah have something that could be bad. Well, yeah, I mean, and I suppose that tracks with your history. For the folks at home, I DM a game of um, Storm King's Thunder that Tully's a part of, um, mm-hmm. and one of the first things that he ever told me in the process of like character creation was he was like, my character's flaw is an uncompromising desire for knowledge, and I swear to God I'm going to make sure that that influences everything I do. <laughs> and it kind of has. So, like... yeah. Yeah, pretty much. You were right. You weren't lying. That's Um, a good example of something that's both a flaw and a good quality, mm. which I really like because it really buys into the the fact that nothing's really black and white and you can use anything for good or for bad. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Any good flaw is going to be something that your character can justify to themselves, I feel. Yeah, like no one sits up in their bed at the start of the day and is like, oh, well, today I feel like screwing over my friends yeah. for no reason. Exactly. Like, there's um, there's a cool con- content creator on, on YouTube. It goes by RuneSmith. Um, he just released a very good bit video on how to write a villain, which was all about write a hero and then write where they go wrong. Mm. Um, mm. It's a couple more steps than that, but he does a really good job um, putting it out. I'd recommend checking it out. I'll try and put some notes in the show notes for you. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of what this show is about. It's like getting maybe a little bit too political, 
uh, for right up top of the episode. <laughs> but it's this thing that um, Karl Marx talks about in a lot of his writings. It's like dialectical historical approach. This thing where like different things in history set the conditions for the things before. So for instance, the example Marx uses is that the conditions of feudalism set the stage for capitalism and then capitalism for communism. But like in the context of D&D, that's kind of what we talk about that like what thing is it that progressed your hero to a villain what thing is it that progressed your world from a thing without temples you know just picking a random thing off the top of my head yeah just something we're never going to talk about um so today we're having a lovely talk about temples so we're not talking uh today about the huge grand um, giant temples that we're going to see, that we're going to make a uh, a trip to go see. This is more about your everyday local temple. Yeah, things your party might encounter if they're heading through a town or even a city. Uh, they might stay at a place for refuge or for food or shelter, or they might just, one of or more of your characters might have a particular predilection towards a specific minor god. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, um, we've got uh, a couple of different classes in D&D 5e that are specifically religious. Um, we've got clerics, paladins, um, I believe monks. some warlocks are... Yep, monks, some mo- warlocks are might have minor deities as their patrons. And then just about any other character can worship a god because the pantheon is real. Hmm? Absolutely. So I think a big thing to keep in mind with this episode is unlike in the real world where not only the difference between different uh, major religions and the interaction between major religions and minority religions is really hotly debated, uh, there's also in the real world a lot of conflict over whether religion is valid at all or whether pantheons or specific gods are real or not. And we have atheism, whereas in the D&D world, well, it's acknowledged that these gods are real, they exist. And it's less about whether you believe in them, more about whether you approve of them or think they're worthy of your worship. Yeah, and it's it, and it's an interesting distinction, I think, in the context of the world because it, make, it takes it from these kind of small groups that are persecuted in a way that you see a lot through human history and these like very large ostensibly political organizations that like um the catholic church and stuff became at a certain point um and it takes away that kind of political force um behind them at least in the context of a lot of these without undermining their ability to function it makes it so that when you can prove that your god is real then it kind of justifies having a temple and having worship even if it's not a god that everyone would want to worship it's not a god that anyone can stop you from worshiping either Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So these societies that you're going to encounter in, in your campaigns, they're all really pro-polytheists. Yeah. Like they're pro-having multiple gods. They're fine with that. In, overall, they're pretty chill with that. What we need to focus on is the conflict between the selection of which gods are your deities and how you would interact with and how you would think about people who worship gods uh, who you might not really agree with. Exactly. Or might have even had a, a run-in with or something happened to your family because of a confrontation about that God. There are so many, there's so much we can mine from that because religion is inherently full of conflict and that really should be mirrored in campaigns because it's just a subject that people will always feel strongly about. Yeah, exactly. Well, I do want to take us away with some of the history in the real world of uh, our minor religions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So basically from Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Hinduism, Buddhism to atheism, religion or like the lack of it, I suppose, has been a source of really hot contention between different cultures and societies from day dot. Let's put that right out there. Um, Where there is society, there is religious tension. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's always going to, I suppose that's always going to be the difficulty when you try to ascribe universal rules to a very diverse group. It's, there's always going to be conflict as to what the rules that apply to everyone are. Yeah, 100%. So, taking your campaign into consideration, uh, maybe there's 
a temple with a particularly sketchy priest that you need to investigate or a temple that your party takes shelter in to rest and recuperate or maybe there's a new temple in town and nobody knows who it worships. If your NPCs or your player characters follow the major religion of the day and place then they won't really run into too much religious conflict conflict when they're going into these scenarios because well they stand with the majority and unfortunately as as the case when you look at any human history the majority tends to rule Mm -hmm. but you know let's explore maybe what it would have been like as a follower of a minority religion in a feudal society which let's face it most campaigns are set in and what these the statuses would have been of temples independent from the major religion of the state or the city how secretive how persecuted and how fearful do your npcs and player characters need to be if they patronize an independent temple um happily for us we have a pretty good idea of the answer thanks to this thing called the erc the european research commission who over five years funded a project called Rollman, which basically investigated the legal status of religious minorities in the euro mediterranean world from the 5th to the 16th century so middle ages we're thinking yeah this study was hosted in La France and was principally investigated by John Tolan, this total boss who basically works on the history of religious interaction and conflict and how that interacts with cultures. I, I love it when people refer to hardcore academics as just a total boss, a complete badass. Just <laughs> yeah. I mean, who else is going to sit down in their little chair and open up tomes and be like this is my life now I'm just going to pluck things out and read them all day forever I'm just gonna read and take notes for like five years and that's my job now and no one will read my studies probably (laughs) it's okay John Tolan you're relevant (laughs) (laughs) finally all his work was worth it exactly the European Research Commission is satisfied they've been featured on Dungeon Deep Dive (laughs) (laughs) Um, so basically this study shed light on I guess the day-to-day practicalities of what we would now call religious cohabitation so multiple religions within the same location Uh, so it really asks the questions how did minorities preserve their religious freedom and their religious expression well first I think you need to understand one thing and that's if even if your characters are a part of the dominant religion or the dominant uh, worship of of the dominant god in that area there will always be sex and divisions because people will always disagree on how best to follow or to worship a god mm-hmm. so back in medieval times the christians were already split into you know orthodox jacobites catholics melkites nestorians the Jews in Karaites, Rabbanites, the Muslims into the Shiite or the Sunni, the varying influence of the four Madabs. So you need to keep in mind that your independent or minority temples don't even need to be from a different uh, religion or a different god entirely. They can simply espouse a different viewpoint on the same gods and the same rules. So that's one thing that you should keep in mind. So what Rollman found after studying masses of these books, tomes, manuscripts and legal writing that until then had been locked up in private libraries and museums across the world was that there were almost always rules in place to regulate minority divisions. They were acknowledged. They were even permitted. There you go. Yeah, which you wouldn't really think, would you? You would sort of think never be like, ah, that's not my God. I you mean, know, screw you. Even now we don't have that. Yeah. We've got very little mediation between religions and how they, they interact. Yes, back in the day, they I think they really did make an effort. I think because there were already so many wars over territory and, and resources and there were religious wars and such that they were sort of like, well, within this state over which I reign, I don't want there to be inner conflict as well. We have too much going on outside our borders. So within these like confines, you can practice mm. You're, we're already fighting on three fronts i don't need you fighting on the inside exactly um so basically yeah they're acknowledged they were permitted except and this is a, is a big exception one that you might find interesting to include in your campaign except mm. when a religion's associated with a particular ruler and his dynasty because then oh. competing religions are of course banned altogether so let's think something like the egyptian god uh the pharaohs were seen as you know son of god or god reincarnated or 
you yeah, know. Some sort of divine entity. Yeah, divine entity, the closest thing you could get. So if you were then saying, no, I don't believe in that at all, well, then you're basically dissing like the monarch. Yeah. And that's never a really smart idea. I mean, it's it's the modern equivalent. It's the, I guess, the ancient equivalent rather of um, speaking bad about, speaking ill about like the constitution. It's like the yeah. fundamental thing. If your ruler's ruling on a religious mandate, and you under and you say that you don't believe in the god, then you don't believe in the ruler. Exactly, yeah. you're undermining his political role as well as his religious role. Oh, and I will just, I do just want to flag just as a as a quick note. Um, it's it is important to remember when you're talking about these different, like these like very diverse groups that in like a feudal society, value systems were very different than they are now. Like the idea of individual rights, the idea of an individual that owns property hadn't even been conceived of at this time. So like people would have been the difference between like a modern society's view towards minority groups would be very different to the, uh, when we're very like individualistic in the Western world, would be very different to the view of a very communally focused, um, largely poorer group of people, like working people who work as a community rather than individually, are going to have a very different set of morals and a very different set of values about each other. Because there's a lot more communal property and communal upkeep and, you know, community living than there is individuals. You're less likely to own your own house, to own your own place. You're going to be living on somebody else's land, working on somebody else's land. Yeah. Which, Absolutely. And I think building on that, what you have to remember is that, yes, indeed, they were largely these big groups of poor people. And to those people, historically, their church or their worship, that was seen as a form of almost community pride and community spirit. And so if you're a part of this community and you don't or can't or won't participate in that area... Well, automatically you're sort of removing yourself from a big part of those poor people's lives. And you have to remember, for the uneducated, which most of these people were, what you don't know is feared. Mm, Yeah. So even if you're protected by law, tolerated by the state and the ruler, there's always going to be a big divide between, you know, majority and minority religions on on an individualistic basis. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to take into account that because they're not going to be the, the primary form of worship, there's going to be those disagreements and though those minority groups are going to come out with less power because there's less people following. Exactly. And that did have repercussions. So going back to history, um, yes, certain religious groups were generally allowed to exist as minorities within the dominant society. Rights to practice their religion were acknowledged, but they did not have the same rights and privileges as the majority caste. This is sort of one of your earliest known examples of second-class citizens. So, for example, um, the Dimi were protected but subordinated Jews and Christians in the Middle-aged Muslim world, and there were similar cases for Jews in much of Western Europe, similar again for Muslims in Spain, Sicily, the Latin Levant. The Christian Roman Empire in the 5th and 6th centuries banned paganism but allowed Jews limited freedoms. So there's always going to be a rise and fall. Um, Really depends on the political climate. But generally, most things will be accepted. Protected but subordinated. That, I think, is the catchphrase. That is a a very good way to kind of sum up just about everything we're going to talk about, I think, is protected but subordinated. Yeah, so religious freedom, social and political inferiority. Uh, that's that's what your independent temples, your followers are realistically going to face. Yeah. Well, I mean, major religious protections only came about in, well, since 20th century. Like, human yeah. rights didn't even, had barely even been conceived of at the time. So it's not like anyone was even arguing that you were infringing my religious freedoms, because that wasn't even a concept. Before the 20th century, we didn't even have human rights. Well, they hadn't even been invented yet. Well, pretty much not. I mean... Like, there was a concept, but kind of scoffed at, unless you were... I mean, there was still slavery... Well, I guess there still is slavery in in places of the world, but slavery was still very widespread at the turn of the century. Technically, the first conception uh, of legally protected human rights, as we would know them today, is actually the Code of Hammurabi in negative... In negative... In 1760 (laughs) BCE... Uh, that's the first time things like your right to a fair trial... Well, no, not sorry, not your right to a fair trial. Specifically, the presumption of innocence, right to a fair trial was not a thing yet. 
Um, so that's actually that's the first crazy. legal codification that's of human cool. rights. But you 1700 don't see BC. 1760 BC. 1760 yeah. BC. That is... To think that, yeah, Hammurabi had figured out... Um, or his, his courts had figured out, you know, the right... You know, yeah, uh, innocent until proven guilty. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's not clear who did it because if yeah. no, if someone else had written it, then Hammurabi would Still have said that he did. But uh, according to the historical record, it was he himself wrote it um, and wanted to protect the good of all mankind. Yeah, well, I think you're always going to have good men and women that, you know, conceptualise human rights mm. and see that they're a good thing and try to promote them and they could even get that passed as legislation. Yeah. But I think at the same time, because as you say, like we weren't individualistic until relatively recently as mm. a species, uh, they weren't really enforced a lot of the time, this yeah. idea of human rights. And it, it sort of became a lot of the time I think, oh, well, you're the subclass, therefore you don't really deserve the same amount of human rights. It's very animal farm, you know what I mean? It's like all animals are good, but pigs are better Oh yeah, sort of thing. No, I definitely I definitely bring up Hammurabi as an exception to the yeah, rule. Yeah, but I it's mean, very cool that it, it was around. Like, it was conceptualised. Yeah, it, show, it shows, I think, that um, specifically in our, for our purposes, that there is precedent to have people that would be to have regions that would be more willing to protect individuals and protect um kind of the general population in a way that others wouldn't but it is very much in these periods an exception yeah but it's very cool to think about it that as a political structure definitely so i guess following on from that you have these examples these really nice examples of things where human rights are considered you know, good things to have and we try to follow them. And I think that that was pretty much the concept of this protected but subordinated status that minority religions had. However, towards the end of the Middle Ages, that kind of all went to shit. As as things did in the Middle Ages. As things did, but surprisingly it was towards the end of the Middle Ages that things went to shit. I think there's a quote from the last episode where, um, I think you said it, it, in the Middle Ages, we took everything that we thought of before and we threw it out the window and tried again. <laughs> yeah, even though like everything was fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, so basically, religious minority status just started completely collapsing. Um, if you were a religious minority, you now faced violence, expulsion. So I guess thinking about your campaign, is your society a stable one? then they'll probably allow minorities, but good luck getting the same social or political standing or recognition as the majority. Is your society, you know, engaged in heavy conflict or collapsing entirely, then minorities better watch out. Because I think you've got to remember that we have this massive precedent in history of the church in Europe exerting a massive influence over every aspect of life in medieval society, birth, education, art, architecture, laws, wealth, marriage, death, they all came under the control and influence of the church. Yeah, it's huge political power. Yeah, medieval Europeans even referred to living in Christendom, the realm of the Christians. So to bring that sort of big flashy sense of realism to your campaign, assume the same result with your world's or your area's major religion or following. Religion is massively influential, so if your world or city has a built-up you know, following, then you should know that religion's authorities can and probably do even challenge the power of any monarch or other secular rulers. Uh, whether your players are then working for like the crown or the cross, as it were, they'll have to be careful of the other side. And as my last point, I suppose, religion has historically not been very kind to trespassers of their beliefs and their rule. So if your campaign does involve any sort of investigation into a temple or religion or a god, there will be fallout. It's a very important note. Yeah. Um, I would also suggest, and maybe, Danae, you'd know a little bit more about this, um, in typically, like, imperialist, uh, very like, literal empires, um, would they have been more controlling over the religion as part of that, like, sense of identity that they were spreading? Or would they have been a little bit less concerned of that because of, like, the political concerns instead? I think with... I think most of the time uh, when conquerors would come in and take over a country, they would start off with, like, a, a soft rule. 
you know, they'd be like, okay, well, we control you now, but you can still worship whoever you want. And they would take facets of their religions and start building them into their own. You see this with the the Romans basically took the Greek pantheon and renamed them. Um, You see this, they took aspects of paganism from Britain when they ruled there and let them keep Hmm. their own religion a a lot of the time. Um, The Romans wiped out the Druidic culture altogether. Well, yeah, the Christians did, the the Romana Christians did. Yeah. But I think that was also there was don't start me on this. There were so many aspects. Just go into my favorite period of history, please. I'm sorry for speaking out of turn about druids. (laughs) (laughs) You should be, but yeah, I think I think the bigger the the empire was, the less harsh they felt they had to be. That's fair because they were kind of like, well, we can screw you like every which way till Sunday. Mm. So you can keep your little gods. And then, like, over time, it got harsher and harsher. They built up their their strength there. And you see that with Christianity. Like, um, it started off like, oh, you can have this kind or this kind. And then they're like, no, you can only have this kind. And all the other kinds are bad, bad. And then they started just killing everyone that wasn't their kind. And So it's gradual yeah. assimilation and then... Um, and then a lockdown, really. Yeah, and then lockdown. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, Pretty effective. Thank you for that. That's a great historical take on what we should be expecting as far as, um, yeah, minority religions, especially when you've got a politically motivated ruler. Mm. Um, so I guess what I'm going to be talking about a little more is the construction and purpose of your temples. Um, so historically, we don't really have, uh, for the construction of temples, a precedent where we can arguably prove that every god is real. That's something that is unique to fantasy worlds. Um, so in D&D and other uh, tabletop RPGs, we're going to see a lot of um, yeah, proven gods, gods that have made appearances that have had notable influence on the world. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit more about what effects that would potentially have on your temples, what that could mean for uh, what they look like and what their purpose is, and then... I'm going to bring back a couple of real-world examples from uh, India, which is one of the places where we have a lot more information of multiple religions operating in the same very small space and coexisting reasonably peacefully. Um, so, um, so first up, what do you need to build your temples? Uh, first, you need to have a Walls. look at... Yes, walls are important. <laughs> More specifically, um, you need to have a look at the values of your church, of your religion. So what do they value the most? Uh, if you are looking at um, your... If you're looking at Pelor, the god of agriculture, then they value more the farmers. They value um, things that grow, provision of food, water. Um, mm. So that's going to be a little bit more about provision of needs. It's going to be a little bit more about agriculture and creation. Um, Is there a sense of community there? Well, if you're right in the centre of a city, the god of agriculture probably isn't going to get that much love. But if you're way out in the outskirts, near the farming communities, then Pella is going to be the primary deity around there. Yeah. Um, Then if you're looking at, you know, are we looking at a god of death or a god of mourning, then that would be a different style of temple, does different things. Um, and some of them even just value worship and piety over anything else. Now, sometimes that'll be specific temples will change even under the same religion. So you could have in the middle of a trading city a, a shrine to Pelor. You know, I'm going to use this example because it's about agriculture. It's a nice even thing that we can talk about in just about any setting because everyone needs food. But uh, if you've got your god of agriculture, the temple in the middle of the city in a trader's district then it's going to be more about worship and piety and mm. preserving the idea than it is going to be about the actual people on the ground. Perhaps even giving thanks for all of the farmers that that god actually enables to provide food to the city. Exactly. So you've got to figure out the values of that specific um, god, of the religion, and of the temple itself. Um, I know... Well, I you- imagine even if... Sorry, if, even if you are a trader and you wanted to go to the temple of the agricultural god, well, if you were trading in grain or wheat, you would 
be praying just as hard as the farmers exactly. for a good be harvest. Praying for good harvests so you could be buying at good prices, selling it off, having enough to, to live off yourself. Mm. Um, one thing to look at in... Um, yeah, so then there's place in society. So this is something that you've both mentioned a little bit. Um, Danae, you've talked about it quite a lot, is are they valued by a lot of people? Is this a minority or a major- majority? So one question to ask us specifically here is are they a member of a, of a valued of an accepted pantheon? So if you have a look, um, in, I'm going to talk a lot about D&D 5e because this is the system that, I've, that I know. But you look at uh, Grumsh and Maglubiet. They are the gods of orcs and goblinoids. Mm-hmm. Now, they are not accepted in the world. You might see them around in, pl- in some places because they are real gods. They are actually somewhere. But they're not accepted in civilised society, at least not the way the literature says. So they would be outcast. They would be hidden. Then you could look at if they have money. So... Um, I know there is there are some real world temples that are literally covered in gold. Um, the Golden Temple at Valor has got fifteen hundred kilograms of gold caked over the the ceilings and walls. Oh yeah, in I've real seen life, better. temples are just. Yeah. Some of them are just almost obscenely wealthy, you know. Yeah, but um, so you got to look at if they've got money. So you know, if you are looking at a god that is. In a majority, a lot of tithes might be paid to them, so they will have money and resources. They will be grander, they will be more beautiful, better kept, perhaps more, have more people there. Um, and then do they represent the common needs? So that's back to sort of um, if we're looking at a god of agriculture versus you know, a god of storms. The common needs in two different areas are going to be completely different. The god of agriculture probably isn't going to mean much in a fishing village, but the god of storms, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Um, and then that goes into you've got to figure out what the purpose of it is. So this is where I'm going to bring in a few more real-world examples. Um, if you look at the five pillars of Islam, one of them is charity. So um, you actually have to donate one-fortieth, uh, so 2.5% of your earnings, to charity. And they would do that at the temples. Um, similarly, in Judaism, um, back at around about the, the turn of the calendar, when Jesus was alive, they had uh, the temple tax. So you would see, if they asked for a tax at the temple, you would see money changes out the front. That's a different purpose. Mm. Uh, if we look into Sikh temples, the Gurdwaras, they provide food for the poor and shelter sometimes for the homeless. And then uh, Islamic temples will also have bathing uh, bathing areas. So they'll have baths and places for you to wash, get clean, both for worship and for everyday life. When you mentioned the Jewish people outside the temples with their temple tax, it just made me realise that Jesus is like the inspiration for the flip table meme. Yes. Thank you, Jesus. Huh. Praise right? Jesus for the flip table meme. Jesus Christ, the original meme lord. Uh-huh. That's not going to attract any attention whatsoever. Put it on a shirt. That's merch, baby. <laughs> um, so, merch aside... Then we have a look. Um, the community is sort of informed by all of those different things. So you'll figure out um, if it's going to be your communities of farmers or of the wealthy, if they're going to be commoners that work around the place, if there's going to be large communities or small, and then what do they do for their worship? Is this going to be you know, washing themselves, paying taxes? Uh, is it going to be performing rituals? Is it going to be silent prayer? They will all change what you do in your, um, in your worship and what the temple looks like. So if you look at Jainism, their worship actually involves a lot of fire. So they will actually take ashes from a fire and place that on foreheads. It's very similar to some Christian... um, By most cool religion ever. Absolutely. Their temples are called temples of fire. Okay, bye. That's amazing. It's fantastic. Uh, And they all always need to... It's very much uh, about purification... Sorry, correction here. It's not Jainism, it's Zoroastrianism. Two very different religions. Are the followers called phoenixes because they can like rise from the ashes and like purify themselves? If not, they should be. (laughs) (laughs) I'm on board to be your new marketing manager. (laughs) Take that on, Zoroastrians. Um, No, so it's a lot about purity and purification. So it's the purifying uh, power of fire, the cleansing power of fire. And then 
they all have to have access to a natural flow of water. Um, so there'll be a spring or a stream that will flow through the temple. It's really very like a interesting. a natural one? Yeah. That's really cool. Oh, it, um, from what I found, uh, to be fair, it was a lot of very shallow research for these. But, um, yeah, it looks like a natural stream runs through a lot of them. That is very cool. But, um, yeah, all of those things will influence what your temple looks like. So the way that'll go, that'll, what that will result in is where is your temple? Well, it could be in the centre of town, it could be in the outskirts, could be on the second floor of a tavern. That depends on who worships there and, you know, their social standing. If you have a look at how big it is, it could be anywhere from a tiny shrine to, you know, a, a, an entire building. Um, we're not talking about giant temples that you pay pilgrimage to, but they can still be large temples. And then if they have a lot of money, they're going to be com- absolutely ornate, um, they're going to be huge. But if they don't have a lot of money or if they don't like flaunting wealth, if it's more about charity, then they'll likely be a lot more simple, a lot smaller, a lot more provisioned with things like food and shelter. And um, then what sort of public service does it provide? And this kind of goes back to uh, the communal aspect of everything is these places of worship were places of public service. So they could provide meals, um, like Sikhism, Hinduism, uh, Islam. Um, bathing appears in Zoroastrianism uh, and in Islam. It could just be places for worship, sometimes study, teaching and learning, and then there's even financial implications with taxes, tithes and money changing. But um, once you figure out what those mean in your specific religions, then uh, that's what you can then figure out what your temples look like with. Yeah, really really all it boils down to at the end of the day is just work out what it is that this religion wants to do, what it, like what their important values are and what they want to do in the community and what their resources are to accomplish that and then just kind of build your temples around that. Yeah, from there those three things like. those three things inform absolutely everything. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. It's really interesting to see how few things actually factor into decisions like this. Um, shall I go now? Yes, yes. absolutely. Very well. <laughs> <laughs> um, so to get into more, I guess, the nitty gritty of actually using temples and the things in them, um, one of the first things that you really have to think about is if you have a temple, your party's going to ask about the God. So you've got to know who the God is and what it is that they're supposed to be valuing. Um, So smaller temples are typically going to be for less powerful, less uh, popular deities as a rule. I mean, because at the end of the day, in the context of D&D, picking a god is more like picking a politician than picking a religion would be today. Because as we were talking about earlier, when all the gods provably exist and are provably imparting magical powers onto people, it's really just a matter of which god do you want to like you the most, not a matter of which god do you actually believe exists. Um, Mm. So smaller temples and stuff like this will typically be for, in the context of something like D&D, for like less powerful gods or gods with rule, with control over things that are perhaps less important to most people's everyday life. Um, things that there isn't a lot of practical use in having widespread worship. Um, but it also could just be like a god of travellers could have, or like a god of the unseen path or something might have like temples along roads and forests or temples in small farming towns and stuff. It's really... Um, a matter of the specific god themselves. Yeah, I mean, you'll find that um, in in the new... I think uh, it's the Magic the Gathering setting that got brought in the Wayfinder's Guide to Eberron. Um, there's some new gods that get brought in with the new races, one of which is called the Traveller, who is the patron of shapeshifters. Nobody's going to worship that openly. Oh, God, no. Um, but there's still going to be you know some people that worship them fervently. Yeah. So... Taking those things in, in, having those gods be, you know, a little bit more hidden, but being, yeah, absolutely worshipped like, well, like a god. Um, Um, And another thing to keep in mind is when you're creating these temples, 
work out whether or not you want them to be a part of a broader kind of religious organization or a religion that is perhaps spread across a larger region. Um, because if it is, then these temples are going to have some connection to the temples before them because whoever built one of them in the region probably had some hand in at least planning the others. Exactly. Mm. Um, so basically what you want to remember is gods typically have a specific thing that they control. So you'll have a god of wisdom, a god of farming, a god of whatever. Uh, they typically have a symbol of some kind um, that is usually on the outside of their temple to identify their places of worship. The original logo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Man. Oh my God. The cross is really just, it really just is a logo, huh? Yeah, it really yeah, just it really is, is. A, mm, I'm loving it, but like for crucifixion. I mean, wow. I, I do find it funny that the symbol that we use for Christianity is literally the one thing that changed them from Judaism to Christianity. It's the thing that killed Jesus. Yeah, it's pretty brutal. Yeah, that's that's the new symbol. Is that's This like is McDonald's, where we split. That's like McDonald's symbol just being like a really fat man. I think more it's like a McDonald's <laughs> symbol being just an abattoir. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting. Yeah, get on it, McDonald's. I'm loving it. Well, that, well, Hashtag that, not spawn. Also available as your marketing manager. Well, that brings up a good point, though, because those, these, um, and the gods will also have, um, I'll say, like, typically specific rituals of worship. But all of these things, the things that these gods represent and their symbols and their rituals and stuff will have some significance. One of the most important things to remember about a religious organization is there's typically some story to accompany most things, if whether it be an oral or a written tradition. Typically, they can... I love oral traditions. <laughs> oh, Jesus. I have a couple. Danae winked, and it was just, oh, wow. Um... <laughs> But the point is, they typically have a story that they can turn to to explain why things are the way that they are. Um, uh, the people that are in temples could be fairly diverse. Um, smaller temples, you'd probably see less people. You wouldn't see like the extremely wealthy or like rulers there unless there was a specific reason for the most part. But you'd see the gods' priests or uh, acolytes or monks or the like. You'd see their paladins and their clerics that were coming through. Maybe some travellers that were being taken care of in the temple. Uh, perhaps people seeking medical assistance or shelter or something if it's one of those temples that it's very overtly providing that kind of public service. Exactly. Actually, in uh, in our first episode when we talk about yeah, you know, second episode when we talk about brewing, we talk about monasteries being a place of hospitality. It's yeah. where breweries started because they were a place where people would stay. And, you know, to think of that as a temple in its own right, um, it adds a whole new dimension to what you think about your local church. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then when you're talking about, like, the specific people that are in there, you've got to remember that, like, clerics and paladins and stuff, classes that are within the context of D&D, have subclasses. And the interesting thing about clerics and paladins is a cleric's domain and a paladin's oath will correspond pretty directly to the values of their religion or the values of their deity. If you have the deity of justice and forgiveness, then you're not going to have a paladin that's out there just cutting people up. You might have like mm. an oath of redemption paladin or something. Yeah. But I think the thing that's most interesting with rules like this um, is once you, once you establish a rule, and the important thing is establishing to your party what the rules are, then you can go about subverting them. So maybe your god of justice and forgiveness does have a paladin who's out there just massacring people because there's maybe a specific provision of religious text or perhaps there's some doomsday beliefs, some kind of apocalyptic beliefs that uh, this paladin thinks have started to kind of come to take place as foretold. See also the Spanish Inquisition. See also the Spanish Inquisition. See also jihadists. Like, so the concept of jihad isn't go wreck people in the name yeah. of, of Allah. And yet some people have chosen to misinterpret that. Mm. And then the rest of the religious following is just aghast at how they've chosen to interpret that in such a bloody-minded way. So that can definitely happen. Yeah. Oh, a paladin as your local extremist is an extremely powerful plot hook. 
Oh, absolutely. And then, because you've also got to remember that these texts and these stories that are being given from religious figures to other religious figures are typically being uh, typically being given between person to person over centuries, if not millennia, and are being given in multiple different languages over the course of over the course of their history. So, you could have a paladin, two different paladins from one. Uh, specific temple even that have just completely misinterpreted, uh, completely differently interpreted uh, religious teachings just based on who it was that told it to them just because they were happened to be the person that was in that day. Um, so these like variances between different people's values and stuff I think could be really interesting to explore but it's important to first establish why they're different to make them interesting to look into. Um, uh, and also with the god thing, as Tully was saying earlier, there are certain gods that may not be acceptable to worship openly in certain areas. So maybe in, to get around that, if you wanted to have the god of orcs have a temple in your major city, then maybe it is the temple of the god of agriculture, that if you go behind a locked door, it's actually a whole like underground temple that worships the orcish and goblinoid gods. Yeah. Absolutely. Um it'd be great to have a hidden temple to a, a forbidden deity somewhere because that's immediately not only a way to uh, to incorporate that... I guess in, in D&D we've, got, we've fallen to the trap of classifying some things as evil rather than um, just a little bit more violent or a little bit more um, sel- selfish than we would usually have. But it gives you the opportunity to incorporate those into everyday life and to humanise the people that follow those religions yeah and i think that it's just once you've sort of established who's there and what their kind of views about the religion and stuff are i think it's then important to work out at least among the major characters in your temple how do they feel about each other and how do they each feel about the god specifically because maybe it's someone who isn't from the religion is in the temple or how do they feel about each other's interpretations of the religion it's one of those things where it's just, yeah, it's difference is key if you can show that the difference is meaningful and that it is different. Um, mm. When it comes to, like, layout and stuff, small temples are typically, I mean, small. It's in the name. Um, so you've got to, they've got to be really efficient with the space that they use. As kind of Tully was talking about earlier, yeah. it's a matter of resources at the end of the day especially in a feudal society where all land is owned by one person, it would be very difficult for a minority religion with very little resources to be able to get a large plot of land to build a temple. So uh, there'd be maybe a place for congregation, a place for the people that live there and work there, and maybe somewhere to sleep, and that could be it. Um But, I mean, religious groups can also have extensive and sometimes shady histories, so maybe that small layout is a front to kind of... To something a lot bigger. Yeah, well, maybe, again, like, underneath there's tunnels, or if you pray the right prayer in front of a door, then it becomes, like, a portal or something. Um, It's pretty badass. It is important to remember that in this setting, the gods are real and a lot of the time, the gods are listening. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, that's another thing, especially when you're talking, uh, kind of circling back a little bit to that idea of like having a temple that looks like it's one god but is actually about another. That would probably have to be, unless you come up with some way to justify it, a god that would be okay with that or a god that they also worshipped or a god that in some way aligns with the values of the other one because that god and its worshippers could very realistically and very practically come and use divine magic to level that temple if they were invoking mm-hmm. that god's name in vain or incorrectly or whatever it was that the disagreement was. Um, exactly. Well, if you look ve- at- it's, uh, Yeah, it's just they're very real and they are paying attention to what's happening and they will act on their own accord as well as through their followers. Exactly. Um... So the other kind of things to consider in terms of layout is just how many people are typically going to be in this temple because obviously that's going to determine what is there and consider maybe um, temples could have 
items of religious worship or sacred places or something that could be great founts of power. Because you have to remember that while in the technical rules of D&D, the magical power of player characters is limited to a certain level, the divine have limitless control over mm. not just what is deemed the weave, which is the thing that you can interact with, with in magic in D&D, but they have control over actual magic, like the raw magic of the universe, or could very reasonably be justified as having that control. Um, so they could have much broader magical powers and have they could have like exceptionally powerful, like, epic magic levels of artifacts hidden in these tiny temples just by virtue of the almost limitless power that gods kind of inherently have in a setting like this. Exactly, and you can focus that on specific things. Like um, we were talking about the Zoroastrian um, religions before, which were they focus a lot on fire. Now there's actually um, in the most powerful temples, in the most revered temples, the fires that are lit there are supposed to stay lit forever but they are lit by a number of different types of fire coming from the fire of uh, a working forge, or like a, a working flame, um, fire stoked by lightning, wildfire. It has to be 12 different types of fire, I believe. Sorry, hold on. How many types of fire, Tully Grimley? <laughs> I, I can check this if you want. Oh I'll put the, the Wikipedia page for Zoroastrian oh, temples into the, uh, into so the show cool. notes. Oh. But... Um, Stokes my inner pyromaniac. <laughs> Let me check this. Fire temples here. Um, Adash Beram, uh, Fire of Victory. So there are nine. It's even more than I thought. There are nine of these temples, which are the, the highest grade, that have the highest grade of fire. It's called the Adash Beram, or the Fire of Victory. And it involves gathering 16 different kinds of fire. So that's including fire from lightning, from a cremation pyre, from trades where a furnace is operated, from hearths. Um, there's a, a bunch more that are not listed here. Um, and then each of those is subject to a purification ritual before it joins the others. I oh you mean God. that poor git that has to go around looking for a lightning strike fire. Yeah, it's like sending people out to get just, firewood was bad enough. Just stand in the storm for a while, see what happens, hopefully. But, but if you think about this in a setting where the gods are provably very real, the amount of power that a fire of that kind that has not been extinguished and is sourced from 16 different places, that is a place of divine worship and a lot of power. Yeah, well, that's the thing, because worship in the context of D&D, and it's especially prominent in... Oh, what's that? What's the name of that race, Tully? The one that can worship gods into existence? Oh, the Kuatoa. Yeah, there's um, the Kuatoa in D&D can, just by virtue of believing in a god, make that god exist. So, like, worship itself is an incredibly powerful thing. So anything that is, anything that is powerful based on a god's own rules in a god's own house with, its, with a bunch of that god's followers all worshipping around it is going to be an immensely powerful artifact. Mm. Um. So it gives you a lot of options to do some pretty significant things, even in like very small temples, um, which gets into like plot hook stuff. So uh, religion is pretty easy because, I mean, you have all-seeing, all-knowing and ostensibly all-powerful gods. So you could have uh, anything as simple as a god speaking in your player's mind or like prophetic dreams or uh, prophecy from a, a religious guru of some sort. Yeah, I mean, religious characters in, um, in D&D are very good for providing plot hooks uh, because they do have a divine link to these forces and that, that force that is calling upon them for whatever the task may be is what gives them their power. So if you have a paladin um, or a cleric and their god calls upon them for a divine mission, that is something that's almost central to their being that they're going to follow. Oh, yeah. And the beauty of it is, because the gods are real, you don't have to justify why any specific character would be trying to get your players to do something, as long as you can justify why their god would because the worshipper of a dedicated follower of a real god is just going to do what their god says. 
Um, so if you can justify why the God of Fire wants your players to go on a mission, you don't have to under, you don't have to justify why John Smith, the head priest of the God of Fire, went out of his way to go tell them. Name creation one hundred and one. Look, I'm good at D and D. Look, at least it wasn't Winona Ryder. <laughs> Um, we'd, we'd like to issue a public apology for uh, our Pirates episode where we uh, we created a character that steals gunpowder named Winona Ryder. We did not realise that we were accidentally referencing Winona Ryder <laughs> shoplifting. We do not think that she should have been blacklisted from the industry for so long for such an offence. And we are sorry, Winona Ryder, if you are listening. Wait, Winona Ryder is a real person? <laughs> oh, sweetie. Oh, honeybee. Um, in terms of the the other thing is, it's re- also really easy, not only is it easy to get your characters to get directions from a god, you can also really easily get your players to enter a temple. The kind of easiest plot hook in the history of D&D is to have your players be walking down an isolated road with no idea where they're going at night and see a temple. And they will go inside. They just will. All players will. I promise you that. So, like, at the end of the day, if you want to get a temple involved, just show it to your players. I, I wish I could say that I'm not going to, just to spite you. But you But will. I know I will. You will, because you know I wouldn't have put that temple there if I didn't have a reason. And I know in character, I'd be checking that out. Exactly. Knowledge Who man. wouldn't? Um, and I do have a quest idea, but I have a little idea. Mm. What if we save that for after we come back from our little homebrew break? Perfect. Well, we're going to take a little bit, little bit of a break here to come up with our own little plot hook, our own temple, and uh, tell you all about how we made that. We'll see you in a second. So we're back, uh, and we're just going to go into our idea of how you could use temples as kind of like a cohesive quest. Exactly. So to kind of set the scene, imagine... Your party's going on, you know, just one of those normal mundane quests. They're delivering something a couple days ride out of town. Something boring enough that your party's going to abandon it when something more interesting shows up. Mm. So they're riding along and after running out of provisions and needing somewhere to sleep for the night, they come across a temple of Grumshwanai, the god of orcs, which the players would know as a god of war and chaos. Um, a god whose main civilizations were built upon a war between the orcs and the goblins and so tentatively needing a place to sleep the party would most likely step inside so this is sort of what you would see if we're going to look at a combination of real history and uh, law books and mythology your temple would be not so much a built structure as it would be probably a cave or a hole-like structure Mm. that has been renovated since, according to the mythology, um, Grimsch created caves and holes for orcs to live in when he was left out of a lottery that was designed to uh, dictate where each race would live. So within this cave, uh, you see... The priests, which are called the Grumans, uh, they wear a patch over one eye to mimic their god. They wear dark red vestments, perhaps adorned with war helms and plate mail. There's uh, spears everywhere because the spear was Grumsh's <laughs> weapon. And paintings on the wall of the new moon, which was his holy day. But there's a weird thing that you also notice, something that you've never heard of being associated with, with Grumsh's worship. Affixed on the wall with nails are goblin skulls. They're clearly not part of the original cave. They're tacked on after everything else has been put there. So Mm. your players are automatically starting to wonder, why this new feature? And it's really, it'd be really easy with a god like Grumsh to have something seem out of place like that. Because... At the end of the day, if it was all, if all of the caves were purposely designed by Grumsh to be places of worship, then all of the structures and the designs and stuff would largely be made into the cave walls. So then, all of a sudden, your party sees a bunch of a bunch of like goblin skulls, like just nailed into or like screwed into a wall, and mm. even like that detail alone, just knowing that they were affixed differently to everything else in the room, is going to give them some idea that something. 
something as that. Yeah, if there are if there are spears sticking out of natural holes in the ground, and then they've nailed goblin skulls to the walls. Yeah, and everything else looks so old and tarnished because of the passage of time, and the goblin skulls are clearly fresh. Fresh, maybe still bloody. Yeah, and the nails are still shiny and everything. Yeah. Um, So as far as provision of goods, what this temple would do, uh, as far as what we know of Orkish society, they're not going to value cleanliness as a a holy ritual. They're probably just going to go down to the nearest water source and wash themselves off. So that's not really needed so much. And there's not really going to be any taxes because they're not a big trading race. They're going to be more communally based by everything we know of them. So it's probably going to be a place to eat and a place to sleep. It's going to be feasting, uh, sleeping, worshipping. And that worship uh, could involve, you know, sharpening of weapons because uh, we do know them as, uh, you know, Grumsh is a god of war. But it could well just be praying for success or protection in battle. Yeah. And so building off of that, your party would likely take up the offer for food and shelter. And upon sleeping, all of a sudden they're plagued with a series of terrifying dreams, which essentially... Sorry, can you do that voice again? A series of terrifying dreams. I'm doing jazz fingers. Well, Not only jazz fingers, but jazz body. He's wiggling his entire form like a like a wacky-waving inflatable tube man. That's going to appear in my nightmares tonight. <laughs> um, in a series of terrifying dreams. And these terrifying dreams are a message from Grumpsh alerting the party to a powerful magical artifact deep within the caverns of the temple that perhaps the priests are misusing. And over the course of the quest, you could realise that it really all comes down to a simple matter of intentional misinterpretation. The, the passages in original Orkish that were originally talking about an ongoing at-the-time war between orcs and goblins could be misinterpreted and mistranslated into another language to justify perpetual war against goblins or even other civilizations in general. Yeah, if, if Grumsh originally just wanted to protect his followers in battles that they already had waging on, you could easily misinterpret that to be, oh, we don't like goblins, we need to do battle with goblins. Mm, battles that at one time Grumsh may have been an active participant in, which would justify the religious texts. But and when you get someone who can turn that into power, who can use that and and teach people, especially if you're looking at a religion similar to like Catholicism as it once was, wherein only the clergy were able to deliver the word of God, when no one was taught to read or anything, it was... All word of God had to come from the church. So if you're in a, an organization like that, it would be very easy for the clergy to do something like this and go against the will of the God for their own, for their own good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is a cool plot hook because it can be as small or as large as you want. It could be anywhere as, as small as um, convince the, the top clergy to stop misinterpreting the word of Grumsh, um, to remove the artifact so that he can properly commune with his followers. Or it could be as large as re-establish Orkish society as it should have been, rather than as a you know feared war warmongering nation. Yeah, absolutely. Got a lot of got a lot of options when you're dealing with something as broad and pervasive in society as interpretations of religious texts, which I think uh, I would argue is probably one of the most interesting ways you can incorporate the divine into your campaign. Yeah, exactly. And look, it's one of the one of the great things uh, that Lachlan was talking about earlier um, is with the interpretation of religion in any of the source books, in the player's handbook, in the, the Dungeon Master's Guide, in any of the extended literature, that's all just... That's made for interpretation. It's oh, yeah. all just guidelines for you to run your universe off. So if the DMG says Grumsh is a god of war and chaos, you can forget about that. That could be a misinterpretation. It could not exist at all. could just be the patron god of orcs. Yeah. it's Again, it just comes back to subverting expectations, doing things that are interesting, that surprise the players, even in a world that they thought they understood. And that requires you kind of changing things on their heads sometimes. Yeah. 
And uh, with that, I think that's probably a good place to wrap up this uh, episode. Thank you for sitting with us for a long one today. We hope, you, hope you've enjoyed us. Um, if you'd like to catch us on any of our socials, we're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Dungeon Deep Dive. And you can reach us via email at deepdivetnc at gmail.com. Get in touch if you'd like to see more of a specific thing, if you'd like us to revisit anything, if you've used anything that we've talked about, or if you've got any suggestions for, uh, for us. We'd love to hear what you have to say. And to hear my secret album of harsh noise that will haunt your dreams, just uh, come Keep find diving. me. Keep diving. <laughs> <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.